Don't try to find the Dhamma only in your sittings. Look for it in every interaction, in everything that this body-mind phenomenon comes in contact with. Whatever experiences that these six sense doors bring to us, Check every single reaction or response you have to whatever's flowing in, including your thoughts, especially your thoughts. There's no hour, not a millisecond in the day that is or could be considered a mindfulness-free zone. A dead zone of awareness. There's no such gaps. Every time you wake up, even during sleep, the question to be asked is, is mindfulness with me? Am I aware? Not in a passive way. Am I aware, aware? Am I really there? Today's sutta is the Saupadisisa Sutta. With residues remaining in English. And it's all about that. Treating this life with dignity, integrity, and responsibility. Not being impassive, not being lazy. This path is not about laziness. There's a beautiful attitude of wanting to have things, to get things done in one's life. To pursue what is the most authentic, the most beautiful, the most elegant, the most truthful, the most sublime, and that is Nibbana, which you will see how Lord Buddha delineates them in the form of individuals who are noble disciples in training. That means they are not yet arahants, but they are on the path and they have experienced Nibbana at its various levels prior to attaining the fourth stage, which is the stage of arahantship, path and fruit levels. They are not yet attained. That is what we'll see, Lord Buddha, describing as to what it means to have residues remaining in a person who's experienced Nibbana. 
But when we talk about Nibbana in this context, we need to discuss it in, in, in terms of its, well, it's, it's two names, it's two designations. One is what I mentioned earlier, Saupadisesa, the name of this sutta itself, with residues remaining. And the other is Anupadisesa uh, Nibbana. Saupadisesa Nibbana and Anupadisesa Nibbana. Now, these are not two different Nibbanas. There's only one Nibbana. How it is being uncovered, shall we say, unlayered in the heart or in the mind of the noble disciple is what distinguishes one from the other, the Saupadisesa from the Anupadisesa. So, we have references in the suttas, quite a number of them, in fact, even in the, especially in the older, older suttas, uh, such as the Udanas and Itivuttakas, where Lord Buddha talks about this state, Saupadisesa Nibbana, as specifically from the context of an anagami, but especially in the context of the Arahant. The Arahant who still has the residual um, presence, shall we say, of what keeps this body together. There's the agreeable and disagreeable, pain and pleasure still happening in the mind of the Arahant. And then there's the kind of Arahant who has gone beyond that. So they're cooled down. In that sense, often the interpretation has been that the Anupadisesa so, uh, Nibbana is when the Arahant has died. That is uh, usually the consensus. However, one might also see that there could be uh, an interpretation of the Arahant having reached a state where it doesn't make an impact on them while they're still alive, while they still are occupying this five aggregate uh, constituent body constructed by the five aggregates, that is, yet still not being in any way moved. They're called cooled, cooled. Now, both levels of arahats have destroyed loba dosa moha, lust or greed, craving, hatred, and delusion. Those roots are completely gone. That's one of the reasons why they're called Narahan to begin with. But these are very subtle states of mind. And that's why many interpretations um, or commentators um, have just came to the conclusion that Anupadisesa means no residues remaining, simply is referring to the Arahant who is dead, who has attained, as they call it, Parinibbana. So I'm, I'm presenting this <clears throat> way of looking at it because this is an area that doesn't get to be talked about. This is not discussed, and we'll see where we get the origin of that attitude from in the suttas, 
from the mouth of Lord Buddha himself. As to why this topic is not talked about by him. But I find this very important because it's, it's, it's important to know when we're on a path, when we're on a road, when we're traveling on a road, as to where the road leads us to. So we don't just, you know, waste time. We don't have time to waste. We never have. But in this sutta, we see how Lord Buddha does not dwell, as I mentioned briefly earlier, on the Arahant's role or relationship to both of these aspects of Nibbana, the Saupadisesa and the Anupadisesa, the residues remaining aspect and the without residues remaining aspect. Instead, we see Lord Buddha expanding the window and he will be referring to not the Arahant himself or herself, but he's going beyond to the other uh, Sekhas or noble disciples in training in this case. That is the Sotapanna, Sakadagami, and Anagami. So he's referring to all these three major stages, but he is unraveling them one at a time, one stage at a time, and in relation to, under the umbrella of Saupadisesa Nibbana. So in the sutta, we are not being presented with the Anupadisesa, which is, as I mentioned, uh, with, without residues remaining. There isn't that interpretation given or explanation offered by Lord Buddha in the sutta. And that is why I found it necessary for you to have a uh, an appreciation as to what does Saupadisesa, residues remaining, stand against? What is its counterpart in relation to what? And that's why uh, Anupadisesa is important to know, for us to know what it is. So we are exploring the different stages of nobility and between uh, the different uh, noble disciples or holy disciples. Uh, meaning those who have seen the Dhamma and moving forward. So um, we talk, you, you'll see Lord Buddha talking about the, the five fetters, the Sangyojanas also. And um, it also will give us a better understanding as to what is their role? What is our relationship to these fetters? Because oftentimes they're misunderstood by practitioners, including practitioners who feel like they have attained one of these stages. But it's not clear to them intellectually as to what are these different things that are supposedly relinquished. So um, I wanted to say those few words about it, and uh, uh, but I mentioned the Udana and Ituvuttaka just to uh, give you a reference. Um, I have a segment here from um, an expert excerpt from Ituvuttaka, um, Sutta number forty-four uh, in the 
Book of the Twos in the Itivuttaka um, uh, section, and they come in together, Udana and Itivuttaka, they're all like old, old uh, books from, as found in the Kuddakanikaya, one of the original books. Um, so there are, O bhikkhus, two elements of Nibbana. What two? The element of Nibbana with residues, Upadi, still remaining, and the one without residues, Anupadi. Here, bhikkhus, a bhikkhu is an arahant, who, one who has destroyed the defilements, who has lived the life, the holy life, that is. Done what was to be done, laid aside the burden, who has attained his goal, who has destroyed the fetters of existence, who by correct understanding is released. While his five sense organs still remain, he continues to undergo both pleasant and painful types of experiences. But because of the very destruction of his greed, hatred, and delusion, he is called the one with the element of Nibbana, with residues remaining, meaning that he's still alive. He's still breathing, he's still walking, talking, interacting with individuals. Of course, a lot less than he would be if he were in the other lower stages of sainthood. Nevertheless, he's alive and his five aggregates are still there. And what, O Bhikkhus, is the element of Nibbana without residues remaining? Here, bhikkhus, a bhikkhu is an arahant, he's delivered, released. In this very life, and all his sensations will have no delight for him. They will be cooled. This is called the element of nibbana without a basis or residue. So, I mentioned that sutta from the Itivuttaka, uh, <coughs> excuse me, to help us kind of see what I was referring to earlier about Lord Buddha talking specifically about the uh, Arahants. So we have that as a reference point. And we're not going to see the Arahant mentioned much in this sutta, as I uh, was referring to the other stages or the trainees. So let's start with the sutta for today. And it comes from the Anguttara Nikaya, Numerical Discourses, and it is sutta number uh, from the Book of Nines, um, and it is sutta number uh, 9.12. So um, when you see the first number in the Anguttara Nikaya, whatever, from 1 to 11, um, the first digit, whether it's a double digits or a double digits or single digit, designate, designates which book it is from, just to make it easier for you. So the Anguttara. Anga means like by a factor of one or one or number. So numerical oh, is, is a usual term for it. So Saupadisesa Sutta, which uh, I translated as with residues remaining. So let's begin. <clears throat> Once the Blessed One was living in the monastery offered by Anathapindika at Jeta's Grove in the city of Savati. Then the Venerable Sariputta, having put on his robes in the morning and by taking his bowl and outer robe, entered Savati for alms. Then it occurred to him, it is too, still too early to go for the alms around in 
Savati, what if I first stop by the monastery of the wandering ascetics of other sects? Then the Venerable Sariputta approached the monastery of the wandering ascetics of other sects, and after exchanging friendly greetings with them, he sat to one side. There was this rule, perhaps spoken but often unspoken, among the ascetic communities, those who uh, were striving on the spiritual path, that they wouldn't be shunned. Um, they wouldn't uh, push away or, um, you know, just eject anybody who is from another sect, uh, sect who approaches them. Um, and uh, sometimes they would find that as an opportunity to engage in debates, but not necessarily all the time, because you have many examples like this sutta, where they don't pull Venerable Sariputta into an argument, into debating. Instead, they might pour him some tea or this or that, because there's still some hospitality there available for each other. So there is a respectful attitude towards individuals, even though they come from a different path. And uh, we don't get to see that <laughs> in today's world. It's amazing how there was this, uh, despite the fact that they were diametrically opposite to one another, especially uh, oftentimes when we read wandering ascetics or paribhajakas or the naked ascetics, we're talking about typically the giants who have been like in a clash with the practitioners of Dhamma proper from day one. Uh, but nevertheless, there was some room for cordiality, um, which is quite nice to have Venerable Sariputta say, well, I can't go and bother lay people in the village because they're all sleeping because they get up at sunrise. And sometimes they're really depleted of energy from the night prior, from having sat for many, many hours, or never slept all that, you know, throughout the night. So they need to have energy. Plus, they have to walk a long distance to get to the village, and then walk through the village streets. Fortunately, some of these villages are still intact. If you ever go to Savati, or especially uh, Vesali, you still get a glimpse of the old, old, old cities. So it's a wonderful experience to, uh, to try walk there. Um, Anyhow, now at that time, the wandering ascetics of these sects assembled and seated were engaged in a conversation saying, friends, when someone dies with residues remaining, he still would not be liberated in every way, as in he would not be liberated from being reborn in hell, from the animal world, from the miserable realm of hungry ghosts, and from any of the other bad destinations in the lower realms. Then the Venerable Sariputta neither accepted nor rejected their words as he got up from his seat while reflecting to himself. I will know the meaning of these words from the Blessed One himself. So the Venerable Sariputta continued on his alms round in Savati. And after the meal was over, he approached the Blessed One. And after paying homage to him, he sat to one side and said, Bhante, this morning, having put on my robes and by taking my bowl and outer robe, I entered Savati for alms. Then it occurred to me, it is still too early to go for the alms round in Savati. 
What if I first stopped by the monastery of the wandering ascetics of other sects? Then I approached the monastery of the wandering ascetics of other sects, and after exchanging friendly greetings with them, I sat to one side. Now at that time, the wandering ascetics of these sects, assembled and seated, were engaged in a conversation, saying, Friends, when someone dies with residues remaining, he still would not be liberated in every way, as in he would not be liberated from being reborn in hell, from animal birth, from the miserable realm of hungry ghosts, and from any of the other bad destinations in the lower realms. Then, while neither, uh, neither accepting nor rejecting their words, I got up from my seat while reflecting to myself. I will know the meaning of these words from the Blessed One himself. That is uh, one strategy that we can use, which takes humility and definitely takes a lot of wisdom. Humility in the sense that you're not stuck in your own views and ideas, which designate the presence of conceit. And Venerable Sariputta was above all those, of course. He was a full arahant. He was awakened, meaning with Magga and Pala. Nevertheless, even though he was second in wisdom only to the Buddha, he still was humble to say, hmm. I mean, I'm sure he had some ideas about what they were talking about, because he is an arahant. So he knows the difference between residues remaining and those without residues. However, he's coming in to check, to check with the teacher. As clinicians or in um, any responsible position for other people's welfare and health, mental health, uh, mental health, I remember when prior to getting licensed, you have to go undergo long hours of, 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 of testing examinations, plus you have to accumulate thousands upon thousands of hours of clinical experience with actual individuals in the room with you. One of the themes that, one of the theme, well, the main theme, I would say, that comes up again and again in that setting, which is mundane compared to the Dhamma, of course, is the importance that they lend to consulting, asking questions, meaning it is good to know that you have a potential clinician coming out into the world to help human beings who is not full of themselves, meaning they're open to consult, to ask questions. So that is so essential to have in today's world, especially when we're talking about the Dhamma. And the example par excellence is none, none other than Venerable Sariputta himself. At the highest echelon of who is a noble disciple. And here he is asking his teacher, Bhante, what does this mean? What is your point? Well, how do you interpret this? And Lord Buddha's response is quite exquisite and direct. Sariputta, who are these unwise, foolish, wandering ascetics? And how could they possibly know or discern the one who has reached the state with residues remaining as the state with residues remaining? Or the state without any residues remaining as the state without any residues remaining? Meaning, how could they know the difference between Saupadisesa 
and Anuparisesa. They're clueless. They're not even on the path. There's no way that they have seen the Dhamma to be able to make such a judgment call. And then Lord Buddha starts explaining. Sariputta, there are these nine persons who die with residues remaining. The ones liberated from rebirth into hell, from animal birth, from the miserable realm of hungry ghosts, and from any of the other bad destinations in the lower realms. Which nine? Here, Sariputta, someone has fulfilled the requirements for having virtuous behavior and in developing the collectedness of mind, but remains incomplete in wisdom having only developed it moderately. So basically, uh, they have been working diligently in chiseling out their virtuous character. They're impeccable. But that's not enough. They've also worked on cultivating the mind to very, very high levels of samadhi. But these two are the ones, as you've heard me mention so many times, they're the two stepping stones. They're the two cru crucial, crucial parts that, takes us, that take us to wisdom, panya. So these were, if you were uh, following with me, sila samadhi panya. So it's at a very high level of functionality. However, as you heard Lord Buddha say, the third aspect, the panya, is not perfected. If it is perfected, we wouldn't be talking about uh, this particular noble uh, person because we would be talking about an arahant. An arahant. So, um, but we're not. We're talking about anybody who actually attained any of the other stages. So this is the highest stage below an arahant who has attained to the path, or Magga. Now, having destroyed the five lower fetters, binding him to the sensual world, he becomes one who is to attain Nibbana during the interval between this life and the next. The, I, I, I mentioned earlier about the Sangyojanas, the fetters, and they are the best designators uh, of, I just plugged in the charger, um, they're the best designators of where the person is at. Uh, again, these are not necessarily for somebody else to know. It is for, first of all, for the person to know who's experiencing the abandonment and the relinquishment, uh, the eradication of these fetters, one after the other. So, Usually we've seen Lord Buddha talk about it from the ground up, but this is from the top down, uh, meaning from the anagami. So when we see the five fetters having been removed, that reference being made, we're talking about anagamis. And, and the sangyojanas are ten, a group of ten, that bind us to this world, not just human world. And an anagami here is one who has destroyed um, all five. Um, and um, yes, so I've gone over the um, uh, them before, but um, if you need me, I, I, I can go basically 
there is um, um, jikicca uh, or skeptical doubts, silabhata um, paramasa, the belief or following or uh, um, rites and rituals and hoping that uh, somehow you will gain the Dhamma eye through them or Nibbana through rites and rituals. Uh, so that also falls. Um, and uh, the most important one, uh, the first actually one is the Sakaya Dithi or the personality view that uh, one has. So these three plus two, uh, which are the Vyapada and uh, the, the desire or the craving. Vyapada, by the way, is the hatred or anger. So these constitute the first lower, lower fetters, which bind the person to the uh, kama lokas, to the sensual realms uh, of which human beings are one. Um, and also a whole slew of different layers of uh, deva realms thrive and, and enjoy themselves thanks to them being in the kama lokas. So one who has therefore broken that uh, connection with these five lower fetters, and lower also is designating the kama being lower than the rupa realm of um, uh, realms, basically kingdoms, of, not kingdoms, but realms of existence. Um, and uh, so the anagamin is not, never going to be reborn in any of these five, um, uh, in any of these kama lokas, rather, that um, the five sangyojanas would be pulling him otherwise into. Anyhow, let's continue. Again, Sariputta, someone has fulfilled the requirements for having a, ver a virtuous behavior and in developing <coughs> the collectedness of mind but remains incomplete in wisdom, having only developed it moderately. Now, having destroyed the five lower fetters, binding him to the sensual world, he becomes one who is to attain Nibbana upon landing into the pure abodes. Sariputta, this is the second among those who die with residues remaining, liberated from rebirth into hell, from animal birth, from the miserable realm of hungry ghosts, and from any of the other bad destinations in the lower realms. Now, if you notice in the previous uh, first designation, actually, um, where Lord Buddha says that person, uh, that, that type of anagami, attains arahantship between the interval of landing in pure abodes uh, before the landing happens. So there's different, um, I love the, this term landing when I first came across it years ago, uh, because there are different designations of uh, the possibilities of arahantship for nanagami. So think of this life as one, uh, one realm and the anagami transitioning to the, the next life because they're not arahants yet they still have the upper or higher sangyojanas, the higher fetters. So they have not removed all the defilements yet. But because of their high achievement in purity, despite the fact that they're moderate in their wisdom, this class of uh, anaga means 
are will attain arahantship in transition, in, in leaving this life while in transition. But the one that we just read where it says upon landing, that's the next level of uh, attainment of arahantship for an anagami. So once they land into, they appear rather, into the pure abodes, which are basically only for anagamis who, who can actually be reborn into, upon landing, they attain. And uh, some might wonder, okay, is it like a child, a baby? How does it work, you know, when the person is, is, reappears or lands? Um, aside from human birth, if you go higher, uh, you don't have uh, a mother and father as such, like, uh, you know, someone, you know, father coming together, um, uh, you know, sperm and an egg and an uh, embryo and fetus, then none, none of that in the higher realms. This is it. This is where it stops, that uh, occurrence. Uh, instead, the person appears in a healthier, usually youthful body, or as their karma vipakas, their fruits of their kama have brought forward. So there's a refinement of all these factors and variables coming together, and the person simply appears uh, in these realms, and usually within the position that they are to occupy. Um, so um, much like you would say, um, a very, very wealthy, maybe a royal um, or a celebrity uh, child, uh, an offspring of a celebrity, is not going to be reborn in the boondocks, in, in you know, somewhere in the slums of some inner city, uh, you know, in the world. No, they're going to be reborn in Buckingham Palace or somewhere else in you know very fancy setting, and they would know this child is mine. They, this is this is they know oh. He or she will be the next to bear the crown, for example. It's, so they are reborn into the role um, uh, of their status, in a sense. So anyhow, that was uh, like a side note. Again, Sariputta, someone has fulfilled the requirements for having virtuous behavior and in developing the collectedness of mind, but remains incomplete in wisdom, having only developed it moderately. Now, having destroyed the five lower fetters binding him to the sensual world, he becomes one who is to attain Nibbana after his rebirth into the pure abodes, but without much exertion. So, even though they didn't attain Arahantship in between, in, in, while in transition, even though this particular Anagami didn't attain Arahantship at landing, However, this third class of anagamins, they attain arahantship while living in the pure abodes, but without putting in an effort. So you're not going to find them pushing themselves or trying to really uh, sit for long, long, long hours um, in those realms, uh, struggling. There isn't. And, uh, you know, here would be, uh, I guess, even though I've mentioned so many times that there is no sudden awakening, 
But given the fact that this person has already done so much work, exerted themselves to get to that level, suddenly while they're enjoying themselves, or there isn't like sense pleasures in, in these realms, by the way. This is only where anagam is. There's no craving, there's no lusting, there's no hatred or anger. Uh, definitely no uh, sensual pleasures like that. Suddenly they become awakened. They become arahants without exerting themselves. Now, just to kind of clarify uh, as to what these pure abodes are, um, pure abodes, they're also called Sudhabhasa, and they are a class of five different realms, and they're above even uh, the Brahma realms. They're still considered Brahma realm, uh, realms, five, but they're above the um, typical uh, Brahma that you've seen and uh, perhaps seen in, in Buddhist or Indian even cosmology. Mahabrahma, for example, is a lower class in a lower group um, uh, than these because no uh, being can actually visit them. This is only for anagamis. And these are meaning non-returners. Once they enter, they, they're not like locked up or anything because they do come out and visit. If, but it has to be always and always and only about the Dhamma. If you've ever come across, uh, came across uh, the Brahma god, Brahma Sahampati. Well, Brahma Sahampati was the one, if you recall from the Dhamma Chakka Pavattana Sutta, there was a Brahma god who came in and visited Lord Buddha when Lord Buddha was, <laughs> excuse me, hesitating to teach. It was Brahma Sahampati who convinced him that there are Lord also beings with little dust in their eyes. Well, guess where Brahma Sahampati came from? Which realm? The pure abode. And if you remember uh, Venerable Kumara Kassapas and Bahiyas and Pukkusatis, uh, old, old friend from that uh, different era when they were all seven bhikkhus sitting on a rock. If you remember that, that one anagami who eventually he wanted to help, but they refused the other uh, five uh, to eat and they died too. He was reborn in the pure abodes. So uh, they do interact, and much of the Dhamma, if it is alive in the hearts of certain individuals, when it is absolute darkness, where there is no Dhamma, there is no Sasana, it is uh, thanks to the pure abode Araha, uh, not well, they could be also Arahants, um, Brahma uh, gods in these realms, uh, that it is kept alive. They're the ones who come and inculcate and encourage individuals uh, to keep practicing, especially those that have um, definitely have had um, contact, close contact with the Dhamma. So the Suddha Vasa uh, or pure boats come in group of five different realms. We have the, uh, and, and they're pretty long lasting time compared to ours. And if you remember, Mahakapa is a full cycle of um, expansion, actually from the Big Bang. So 
that is equal in amount of time as is the expansion period. And then once that is done, you have then the stillness where it comes to a full stop. And that is also equivalent to the same duration. And then the crunch, the big crunch, as they say in astronomy today, when it comes back to the source, to the center of where the Big Bang started, that same duration. So these four stages together, we're talking about an incredible amount of long, 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 inconceivable time as far as we're concerned. That makes up Mahakalpa. So the lowest, the lowest um, time duration for uh, these Suddhavasa realms is the Aviha uh, or Aviha realm, which is the non-decline. It means non-declining realm. And that is 1,000 Mahakalpas. 1,000 of those bundles of time. And then we have the Atapa, which is the unperplexed or unworried realm. And that is double that, which is 2,000 Mahakalpas. And then we get to the Suddhasa, which is the um, visible, um, uh, clearly visible or brightly visible and that is double of that, which is 4,000 now, Mahakalpas. And then we get to the Suddhasi, which is the clear um, visioned uh, realm. And that is double of that one, obviously. It's 8,000 Mahakalpas. And then finally, we get to the uh, Akanita um, realm. And that is double of that, which is 16,000 Mahakalpas. Now, this is uh, the group of five realms, pure abodes. No being who is not an anagami can be reborn into. Yes. But oddly enough, uh, many people say, well, what about the higher realms? Because we see Buddhist cosmology and it also talks about Arupa realms. Yes. In the Arupa realms, there cannot be Dhamma. Because there is no consciousness, there is no awareness, there is no perception of thought. And if there's no perception of thought, there is no processing of information. And that is one of the reasons, the big reason, why Lord Buddha was not able to go to those realms to teach. If you recall, when he did decide to teach, the first two names that came to mind were his previous teachers, Alara Kalama and Uddhakaramaputta. And they had both been reborn to, um, respectively, to the uh, nothingness realm and to the sphere of neither perception nor non-perception. These are higher uh, cosmologically, if you want to look at it, because the neither perception nor non-perception realm, not that it matters, but just for information, it is, uh, I think, 80,000 Mahakalpas. So it's a lot longer time. But as far as the Anagamis are concerned, who cares about time? Because they're trying to do and accomplish what they're there for, if they're not Arahants yet. And if they are Arahants, as many of them are, they're simply there to be placeholders for when there is the dark age where there's no Dhamma, to keep the Dhamma alive somehow. 
And they're always scanning the cosmos, the universe's existence to see whose heart still has some element of Dhamma in them. Maybe we can go and encourage them to maintain that fire. And especially when the Bodhisattva, the Buddha, uh, that's what we mean by Bodhisattva. Only a Buddha can, uh, a Buddha to be can truly be called a Bodhisattva. And um, when that individual attains Samma Sambuddha stage, the typical um, interaction would be with the uh, Brahma God, any of them coming in and trying to convince that Buddha to teach. So there's these protocols. Anyhow, I, I'm giving you these side notes so that you have a better perspective of or maybe con context, perhaps. Uh, okay, so again, Sariputta, someone has fulfilled the requirements for having virtuous behavior and in developing the collectedness of mind, but remains incomplete in wisdom, having only developed it moderately. Now, having destroyed the five lower fetters binding him to the sensual world, he becomes one who is to attain Nibbana after his rebirth into the pure abodes, but with exertion. Sariputta, this is the fourth among those who died, with residues remaining, liberated from rebirth into hell, from animal birth, from the miserable realm of hungry ghosts, and from any of the other bad destinations in the lower realms. So uh, this particular anagamin has to work harder, as, as we saw. Um, harder than the previous ones. But hey, it's not a bad deal, right? You're in the pure abodes, and it's an amazing uh, opportunity um, for such uh, being. And uh, next is, again, Sariputta, someone has fulfilled the requirements for having virtuous behavior and in developing the collectedness of mind, but remains incomplete in wisdom, having only developed it moderately. Now, having destroyed the five lower fetters binding him to the sensual world, he becomes one who is bound upstream, heading to the Atanita realm, where he eventually attains Nibbana. Sariputta, this is the fifth among those who die with residues remaining, liberated from rebirth into hell, from animal birth, from the miserable realm of hungry ghosts, and from many of the other bad destinations in the lower realms. Now, if um, you recall, the Akanita is the highest, the 16,000 Mahakalpawan, um, where a person lives that long in that realm. Um, now, one might say, well, why does this person who hasn't attained either in transition, at landing, at spending some time there without exertion or with exertion, why does this particular person who doesn't become an arahant uh, as soon as the others do, uh, how come this person is being reborn in the highest of, these, of this group of five pure abodes? because he or she is going to take a longer time. So they're going to need it because they most probably have just made the, they made the cusp. They made the cut, if you will, uh, beyond being just a once returner. 
so they'll need the time to accomplish the task. And uh, no, no, no one from these realms, from uh, what I have researched uh, and asked about this, uh, nobody in these realms will ever reach that end of their life span without having first attained full arahanship. So, and as I was referring to earlier, many of these uh, uh, Brahma gods, if you will, um, have already become arahants, full. And uh, they could uh, die out from those realms if they choose to, but many, many, many more wish and are willing to stay in those realms. And imagine arahants for thousands and thousands of Mahakalpas there occupying it uh, in, in these five realms. So, um, yeah. So just when you feel like uh, things are crashing down on you or you feel like you're stuck somewhere in the dark in, of, of uncertainty, of avidya, of this or that, please remember the pure abodes. We're not completely alone, you know. And the deva realms of the Brahma gods, it's not all about pleasure and just sublime states of whatever that they fall out of. And then boom, 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 like a stairway, just, just fall back down to the lowest. No, they are the pure abodes. So that gi gives me a tremendous uh, hope and uh, also um, soothes one's heart in knowing that those who have come before us are not gone in the sense of their, uh, their influences still being present. As evidenced by Brahma Sahampati, if he had not approached Lord Buddha, we would not have had the Dhamma, period. The Four Noble Truths would not be here. We would be in the dark still. Miserable state of affairs. Next. Again, Sariputta, someone has fulfilled the requirements for having virtuous behavior and in developing the collectedness of mind, but remains incomplete in wisdom, having only developed it moderately. Now, having destroyed the three fetters, he becomes a once-returner, Sakadagami, who, with the reduction of greed, hatred, and delusion, comes back only once more to put an end to all suffering. Sariputta, this is the sixth among those who die with residues remaining, liberated from rebirth into hell, from animal birth, from the miserable realm of hungry ghosts, and from any of the other bad destinations in the lower realms. Often we've talked about, you probably have read and heard from others, these different states, Anagamin, Arahan, Sotapanna, Sakadagam, etc., the reason, again, why uh, primary reason uh, for me to want to present this sutta is, first of all, it's not talked about, it's not covered, it's not commented upon uh, enough. Because it gives us a textual basis, a foundational understanding as to what Lord Buddha said about these different states and the details that he provided for each of these. And so it can actually give us a better perspective as to what is what and what to look forward to and what to work towards. So here we see someone who hasn't broken all five, but has come pretty close. 
to the five Sangyojanas being uh, eradicated. And this person, this being, has uh, pulled out the roots uh, of, of the three. Completely, they're gone. Meaning the first uh, three that I mentioned, Sakaya Ditti, uh, Silabhata Paramasa, and Vichikicca. The personality of you uh, sticking to rites and belief in rites and rituals that they would take you to Nibbana, saying mantras, chanting, going on pilgrimage, um, counting beads or some things like that, uh, making certain number of prostrations. All these are rituals or chanting the suttas or sutras. All these will never get you to Nibbana. Uh, that person knows that. And that's why they have seen the Nibbana element, dahatu, And then the vichikicca, which is doubt towards the teacher, the teaching, especially Lord Buddha, the Dhamma, the Sangha, that doubt is completely demolished, completely, in such a person. So, however, this does not mean that the other two Sanyojanas are completely intact. No, the, the image I've given uh, to uh, students in the past is imagine having a tooth when we were children, if one tooth, you know, the baby tooth is going to come out or a tooth is going to come out, it starts to kind of dangle. It's like it's so loose, but it's not coming off. And there, there's different spectra, uh, different levels of, of how tightly it's holding on to its root, but it is moving. So those other two Sangyojanas within this particular Sakadagami are moving. They're not off, they're moving. They're not solidly stuck in there, like the case is with uh, uh, Sotapanna. But they're moving. So, um, again, Sariputta, someone has fulfilled the requirements for having virtuous behavior and in developing the collectedness of mind, but remains incomplete in wisdom, having only developed it moderately. Now, having destroyed the three fetters, he returns one last time to be a human being. Um, the other ones, uh, in the first uh, of the Sakadagamins um, um, that I, we would just went over earlier uh, is, could rather, be reborn, not necessarily in a human realm. If they want to, they can. But they also can be reborn in higher realms, not the pure abodes, but any of the other realms. Again, they will not drop lower than a human realm. And that's why Lord Buddha, with every single one of these explanations, these paragraphs, he's completely clear that a person of uh, such uh, level, Sotapanna, Magga level and up, will never taste lower rebirth again. It's impossible. If they've genuinely seen the Dhamma, if they've genuinely uh, uprooted at least the first three fetters. There's no ifs, there's no questions about that. Here, however, uh, <coughs> excuse me, um, some translators have used, you know, um, the term uh, one seed attainer, for example, um, uh, and I'm not a fan of that term, one seed attainer. Um, and the Pali term itself is ekabiji, 
eka means one, bija means uh, seed. Uh, now in those days, they didn't necessarily make the distinction between sperm and an egg. So for them, it was just a seed, one seed from mom, one seed from dad, from the father. So the way, at least I understand this, eka term is that the person is conceived and born not as part of being a twin, for example. And um, I don't have any um, textual backing of this. Um, however, I have a strong feeling that it also is uh, talking about a type of rebirth where this person, this male or female, is uh, being, uh, who's born as a human being, is um, born into a family of a mother and father. Um, and um, they're, 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 they're the single uh, only child to them. That's how I interpret Ekabiji. Now, of course, many people will argue with that and saying, how, what basis do I have? It's not textual based. How about that? Because all of the interpretations and commentaries I've researched, they're completely unsatisfactory. Um, you know, and, and they're very uh, mystical terms. And, and Lord Buddha's path is not about mysticism. It's not about esoteric metaphysics and things like that you know it's it's all about it's very grounded it's very pragmatic so the attention from both parents are going to be uh coming in to this child and if you've ever seen a single child an only child even the first child <laughs> um, they get so much attention compared to the second and especially the third child or the middle child um so that is how I would interpret this Ekabiji uh, part. Uh, so continuing on in this uh, paragraph, who this, this being this person, who with the reduction of greed, hatred, and delusion comes back only once more to the human world to put an end to all suffering. Sariputta, this is the seventh among those who die with residues remaining, liberated from rebirth into hell, from animal birth, from the miserable realm of hungry ghosts, and from many of the other bad destinations in the lower realms. Um, let me just go on to the next two, and then I'll, I'll, I'll uh, share some more thoughts on it. Uh, again, Sariputta, someone has fulfilled the requirements for having virtuous behavior and in developing the collectedness of mind, but remains incomplete in wisdom, having only developed it moderately. Now, having destroyed the three fetters, he is reborn as a human being, um, and uh, the terms I've seen uh, other translators use is uh, the one who is a family to family attainer. So you go and, you know, um, that, that's the term that they use anyhow. But the way I've translated the rest of this uh, paragraph is roaming from one good family to another two or three more times until he puts an end to all suffering. Sariputta, this is the eighth among those who die with residues remaining, liberated from rebirth into hell, from animal birth, from the miserable realm of hungry ghosts, and from any of the other bad destinations in the lower realms. So obviously we're not talking about um, uh, uh, Sakadagami here because we're talking about two or more uh, births. And that is uh, uh, a person who is a Sotapanna. 
not a sakadaga. I mean, the sakadaga, I mean, is only going to, going to be reborn once. And uh, so uh, some people are confused about this particular paragraph, and they still call this a sakadagami, but that is uh, incorrect. If you've studied any of the other suttas where Lord Buddha discusses uh, the different designations of uh, these stages of awakening, is very clear. Otherwise, he would have said one or more returners. He didn't say that. He said once returner. Very clear, very specific. And then finally, we get to <clears throat> the last, excuse me, <clears throat> excuse me. Again, Sariputta, someone has fulfilled the requirements for having virtuous behavior and in developing the collectedness of mind, but remains incomplete in wisdom, having only developed it moderately. Now, having destroyed the three fetters, he is reborn either among humans or the devas, roaming through sangsara for seven more times, at the most, until he puts an end to all suffering. Sariputta, this is the ninth among those who die with residues remaining, liberated from rebirth into hell, from animal uh, birth, from the miserable realm of hungry ghosts, and from any of the other bad destinations in the lower realms. So, uh, well, let's... Um, Yeah, um, when we're talking about these beings, these individuals in these nine categories, um, excluding, of course, the Arahants, um, we're talking about rebirth that takes place in the most opportune environments. A good birth, a high birth, even in the case of a human birth. Now, that does not exclude that the previous vipakas or kamma vipakas are not going to be greeting the person at landing in their birth. So they might have a deformity, they might have some issues, but nothing that would inhibit their attainment, either full arahantship or stage-by-stage uh, -stage, uh, progress, meaning they will never be regressing the conditions uh, need to be right for them, first of all, to be reborn. And um, oftentimes it is by choice, especially, and it comes in the gradations of, of, of the intentionality involved. Uh, a person who is an anagami will have far more ability in designating as to where and when they will be taking rebirth versus, let's say, a sotapanna of, of the most basic levels. So uh, let's continue uh, back to the sutta, with the sutta. Therefore, Sariputta, who are these unwise, foolish, wandering ascetics, and how could they know or discern the one living or having reached the state with residues remaining, as the state with residues remaining, or the state without any residues remaining, as the state without any residues remaining. Anupadi says so. I recall one time I was present at uh, a ceremony where uh, individuals were taking the five precepts. And 
a person, um, uh, after they've taken the precepts, um, these individuals, uh, one of the individuals who was uh, in the role of a teacher came out and said, um, and in fact, I looked at their uh, booklet of chants, this and that, and I saw how it was written that once a person takes the five precepts, then precepts, then they no longer will be falling into the lower realms. That is complete misrepresentation of the Dhamma. Nowhere in the text, nowhere in the suttas will you find any reference to such a thing. This is just made up. This is just later on added 500 years after when the Dhamma became polluted and corrupted by other influences. The five precepts don't, do not guarantee. Now they will, if a person works on them, to purify one's mind, one's virtuous behavior develops. Yes, they definitely can turn the sila and augment it with uh, the practice of cultivating the mind, sati especially, and faith. Those things could necessitate, could, uh, could actually, they could bring forward the possibility, uh, give the opportunity for the person to really listen to the Dhamma in a totally different way, enough so that they can become sotapannas, or while they're practicing meditation. So the five precepts are a very important uh, set um, of, of, of guidelines. That's why we take them. That's why we took them today. Every time you sit, the five, eight, 10 precepts or 227, these are crucial, but they don't necessarily mean that automatically the person is now having taken it is not going to fall into the lower realms. No, that is false. That is not true. The only way that we're not going to fall into the lower realms, below human being, that is, is if we have attained any of these stages, as Lord Buddha makes it very clear. So we need to go back as to what is true and what is not true. And today we're living in a world, especially in the Dhamma, where a lot of junk is present. A lot of non-dhamma is being promulgated, taught as dhamma, by very famous, very well-known monks and nuns. And it's been going on for, for decades. I remember in academia, when over almost 20 years ago, um, in the university, one of a very uh, you know, prominent professors of uh, the university uh, who is also, um, not to name names, but uh, he had uh, also another position at the same time in a very prestigious university in the country uh, who was there visiting and he was teaching us this course. He mentioned how uh, in, the, in, the, in, the, in the sentence that he was using, he said, that is why 75% of dissertation topics involve uh, Mahayana and Vajrayana. Not enough interest is there for Theravada. What I'm teaching you here is Theravada. What I've been talking about is Theravada. And not just Theravada. Theravada was a later development. But what I'm referring to is the earliest teachings. Even the Theravada is quite corrupted in many ways because there's a strong adherence to commentaries versus the suttas. So we can't even use the Theravada title and say, okay, we're legitimate. No, we're not. 
if that's the position. We have to go back to the sutta. So the reason why I brought that up is because during the past 10 or 15 years, things have been shifting, fortunately. There's so much interest in the Dhamma proper, minus all the junk that was added later. We see how there is the immediacy of practice and the human element is still present in the earliest teachings. It's not a supernormal, it's not a, it's not a cosmic Buddha, this or that, which is completely divorced from our living experience. So these are all individuals who have been human beings that we're talking about, that are in these nine stages, including the Arhans. So the time that you're spending exploring these suttas is quite valuable. And how you approach that topic, how you approach the suttas is crucial in getting you to qualify to occupy any of these stages and move up the ladder. This is real. This is not some things that we're reading. This is not a, you know, Snow White. It's not a fairy tale. It's none of that. And it's not a maybe. There's no maybe in the Dhamma. So we're not delaying, we're not postponing progress. Lord Buddha continues, Sariputta, there are these nine persons who die with residues remaining, the ones liberated from rebirth into hell, from animal birth, from the miserable realm of hungry ghosts, and from any of the other bad destinations in the lower realms. This is where it's, uh, it adds another interesting uh, layer to the whole sutta. Sariputta, up until now, I had abstained from giving this discourse to bhikkhus, bhikkhunis, male and female lay disciples. And what was the reason? It was because I saw how in hearing it, some might get discouraged in their efforts and thereby become negligent and heedless. However, it was necessary for me to give this discourse now in order to answer your question. Thus, may all those who listen to it become diligent and heedful by hearing this discourse as it is intended for the wise. Sadhu, sadhu, sadhu. It's very easy for us to feel overwhelmed or think that there's no way. I mean, look at the lofty states Bhante is talking about. Lord Buddha has, has, has uh, given us this beautiful sutta. So there's no way. Why not? <laughs> the last paragraph, I find it to be so, so contemporary in a sense, in, 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 in its humanity, in its humanism. It's so precious. It brings the Dhamma to... It brings the whole, every single thing that was mentioned by Lord Buddha is being told to us right now at, with this paragraph that you too can attain this. Any of these. And that's why we practice. We don't practice just to feel good. For that, you have other, other meditation groups. For that, you have apps, right? You go to the app store, you go to any other thing, you can get an app and you can relax. 
You want jhanas? You have tons of teachers nowadays. You have videos. Okay, so there's like sleep. And then when you wake up from that sleep, what are you going to do? You're still stuck with the misery. Only the Dhamma can allow us to break the contact, the shackles of Dukkha. And these are individuals who started just from where we are at now. Many of them have actually been even more miserable than us. Venerable Angulimala, he was about to kill his own mother after having already killed almost a thousand people. Can you imagine yourself killing a single person? A cockroach? Can you? Well, he actually killed, strangled, butchered people. 999. Imagine the mental, emotional uh, turmoil that this person was living through every single millisecond. He was dukkha. He was living dukkha. Yet, in that same lifetime of his, he became another hunt. This is mind-boggling. You do not see this in any... Uh, remotely, even any kind of spiritual path out there, that there is that potential for a human being to go from that level to such a high level and attain peace. So what we are seeing then is Lord Buddha saying, it's no point. I mean, in fact, this path is not about planning for our next life. I once was talking to a Mahatera, an old, old Mahatera. And I said, uh, one of my oldest teachers, uh, and I said, Bhante, uh, you know, I love you, I care about you, and I take care of you, I do my best as your student. But I said, what, what, what would happen, what will happen to you when you die? Because I don't see you meditate. I mean, we were close enough for me to, I, and I was not being disrespectful at all. And he was a wealth of knowledge. You could point out any sutta, any term, anything, and he would just quote you where it's from. I learned so much from him, but as far as the suttas go, but I knew that he was not practicing. And sometimes the sila was not there. I definitely saw there was no samadhi. And I also saw, unfortunately, sometimes there was not enough discernment. And I was a, I, I was a nobody next to him, but I was able to distinguish what is sila, what is not. So there was a problem. So I wasn't pointing these things out because that would have been very disrespectful for me at that point even though I was coming from a good place. But his response uh, shocked me. He said, yes, I'm not a meditator, Chandana. I was a layman. This is happening years ago, almost 30-some years ago. Yes, I'm not a meditator. But when I die, most probably I will be reborn in the uh, deva realms where i will be able to practice the dhamma and attain there and i was so 
that took the wind from under me, from my sails, actually. I was just like, I, I collapsed in hearing that. Here I am trying to learn about the path and how to practice the path. And I'm getting some superb, superb resources and teachings, don't get me wrong. And I asked Bhante, but why would you be reborn in the Deva realms and practice there? He said, because of the wealth of Dhamma that I know, memorized. And, you know, he didn't say understand necessarily, but he knew and he definitely had a good understanding of what is, uh, let's say, the teachings of Lord Buddha and what was added later on. But I found that to be highly prob problematic because it's all about delay and postpone. How does he know that he's going to be reborn in, in heaven? And that is something that, is, uh, that needs to be scrutinized because we have that. This path is not about blind faith. When I share with you Buddhist cosmology about these different realms, there is not a iota of desire in having you have blind faith in any of this. The point is, practice the three trainings, sila, samadhi, panya. Then it's up to you to see it for yourself, these realms. Then the Dhamma becomes alive out of the text into you, the very fabric of your life. But first, we need to stop dilly-dallying our way through life, wasting our life, being lazy, putting that as, as a side, as, or treating it like this venerable was, treating the Dhamma in a sense, or the life, not the Dhamma, but his life, that the most precious thing he had, which was like being treated like an insurance policy for your car or your house. If something horrible happens, well, you know, oh, oh thank goodness I have insurance. I, they can care, take care of it. When I die, the Dhamma that I've done, then it should get the merits that I've done, it should get me to... Uh, that's not a path that Lord Buddha taught. He was very concerned about doing what needs to be done now. Could you delay showing love and expressing love to your beloved? Could you delay that? Whether it's your mate, your wife, your husband, your boyfriend, your girlfriend, your cat, your dog. Would you delay showing them your love, your affection, your kindness, your compassion to them? How about this? Could you put out, well, could you delay putting out the fire that you caught in your clothes? As Lord Buddha says. Or how about your hair that's caught, that's caught fire? Would you delay that? Putting it out, extinguishing it? Of course, the answer is no to any of these questions. But how come we are doing that when it's our life on the line? Something else that needs to be said is, is about sotapannas, because being a sotapanna is the very first stage, and it's so crucial. And sometimes I've noticed people want to just like push that aside. No, no, no. I'm, I, my goal is to become an anagamin at the very least. Or not a hunt. Yeah, it's so passe, the sotapanna. Completely demeaning it, 
in a sense. But many people don't understand how individuals like Visaka and uh, Anathapindika, who were both uh, Sotapannas, uh, stream winners, stream enterers, uh, from the time of Buddha. Visaka was the female benefactress, uh, the rich uh, uh, supporter of Lord Buddha. And, uh, and the Anathapindika was the male version of hers. <laughs> He's the one who got the who purchased the land and constructed the Jeta's Grove, the, the monastery there. Now, when we hear the term about the, the thing, the description or explanation about a Sotapanna having at the most seven more lifetimes to live, they're not necessarily going to be happening uh, quickly one after the other in one or two, you know, like uh, very quickly, basically they could take place eons apart, eons apart. So the person might be, uh, let's say, Anatapindika, who was a Sotapanna, and an eon later, uh, let's say, or within the eon, the next Buddha that shows up, he might be reborn there, Anatapindika for his next life. And that would be probably the last time he would be reborn, even though he qualifies for up to seven more lifetimes. Because I've heard how some people think that it has to take seven more lifetimes. That is missing or misunderstanding rather what is being said here. When Lord Buddha said seven more lifetimes, it's like that Anagami who was reborn in the highest Anagami realm, but he's going to have to, or she's going to have to spend a long time because they hadn't attained it. So the seven more lifetimes, it's like that, is uh, that person has that many rebirths, but within that time frame, they already have attained, usually. And another thing to remember is the level of attainment is never lost for a Sotapanna. That means they don't add, they don't have more smudges or more dirt uh, covering up. So they're not going to start believing, let's say, in personality view. Or it's not going to be like the Vichikicha that was uh, destroyed, the, the skeptical doubt in them suddenly it comes back because of the time passing. No, it as genuine, it, has, it is as pure as it was when they first attained it. It's that powerful. So these qualities will never diminish in them. Their faith is so strong and they know what is Dhamma from Adham. Nothing could fool them. One of the beautiful examples that Lord Buddha, uh, well, we have from the suttas is Lord Buddha is teaching this uh, individual uh, who has come to listen to the Dhamma. And I think he was a pauper or something. And um, he's completely transformed because after the Dhamma, during the Dhamma talk, he attains the stage of Sotapanna because he sees with the Dhamma eye, Dhamma chakku opens up. And he was not a meditator, by the way. And that's another thing. You don't necessarily have to be a meditator. But the reason why I say that is it still has to be there, at least in the form of sati. That's one of the 
very important requirements for being present when a Dhamma talk is being shared, given. To completely put your mind, intellect aside, whatever it is, paying attention to all these interpretations. Oh, what, what you said, this is okay. So it, you lost it because you're residing or you're coming from a wrong place. There needs to be openness. And that is where the sadha has to happen. That sadha with awareness can really do it for the listener. Because remember, one of the ways to attain Dhamma, to attain awakening, is through listening to the Dhamma. Could even be from a fellow uh, practitioner. Or not a practitioner, something that you hear. But something that is genuine, something that speaks of the Dhamma, that speaks the Dhamma, without having those bells and whistles on it. But your mind, your heart was in the right place. And that is why you're not, you wouldn't be dilly-dallying. You would not be wasting time. Don't waste time hoping for uh, being reborn in a Buddha realm. There's no such realms, by the way. This was just later added because when the Mahayana came in, many, the original Mahayanas were actually very, uh, um, they, they were seeing the errors that were happening in whatever was the beginnings of Theravada. They, they didn't see some of the things, not, not all Mahayanas. Of course, they were designated not as Mahayana. They were different names, like Mahasangikas and this and that. But many people took the idea, the principle of the pure abodes, and they projected it onto their own concepts. And they added a Buddha in that realm, and they called it a Buddha realm has nothing to do with the suttas. It has nothing to do with the teachings of Lord Buddha. And then they wrote sutras to validate these, putting words in the mouth of Lord Buddha. It has nothing to do with the Dhamma, original teachings of the Lord Buddha that we get, which still is not pure 100%, because within 100 years, a lot had happened. Even though we've had the first council codified, canonized, and then you go at the time of uh, Emperor Ashoka, who constructed these uh, epithets, these huge uh, sandstone, uh, wonderful columns upon which he carved out the five precepts. He also carved out the suttas. He also carved out the five nikayas. You don't find any of the other sutras. You don't find any of the commentaries, none of those things. In fact, even in the fifth book, the minor discourses, which I mentioned today briefly about the Udana and Ituvuttaka being part of, there's also Dhammapada, there's also the Suttanipata, which is the oldest set of uh, books, and you have the Teragata and Terigata. That's it. Those were the parts of the Kuddaka Nikaya. And that's how we know these were the most original bundle, the library of books, if you will, of the canon. However, some centuries later, even in the Kuddaka Nikaya, you had so many different books added. And this is even before the Mahayana showed up. So already it had become uh, corrupted by having different elements being added into it. So again, this is also to give you some historical background 
as to what's what. Ultimately, the goal is not to waste the time to attain at least the magga, the path level of awakening. And it is each and everyone's right. And so long as they are seeing themselves as fit to attain. And there's more things to be said, of course, because this is a very uh, loaded uh, sutta, I would say. I know uh, Lady Sayadaw, uh, who was uh, a giant in the early part of 19th century, um, uh, 20th century, I'm sorry, um, has written wonderful uh, uh, essays on the um, the differences between saupadisesa and anupadisesa. And he talks about different qualities that come into the life of the sotapanna. And he talks about different aspects. He names four specifically. And uh, one is the release that the person knows that something's happened and they're not the same person as before. That's the personality change. They are released from the person they were. There's a sense of deliverance. And then um, that's in Pali, Nyanatho, um, um, uh, which is release. And the other one is the Sotapanna knows, oh my, now I have the potential to be an Arahant. I have the secret ingredient in me. The Sotapanna knows that that seedling is in the heart now. It is now inevitable for the person to become an Arahant. Now, self-doubt is still covering it, oftentimes. And it will take a lot of effort, a lot of probing and a lot of discerning using the three trainings. And then he, uh, he or she gets to the realization of the truth meaning knowing what is Dhamma from what is Adhamma, Dasanatho, um, and then there is the power, uh, which I mentioned earlier about, for example, the Visaka and Anathapindika's examples that can never be dissipated. It doesn't die in the person. It doesn't wane. It doesn't become weaker or become eroded in the person after their death. It's so fresh. It's so fresh. And that is the thing which, when they reappear in a deva realm, or they are reborn into, back into, let's say, the lowest of the potential realms of existences, meaning human realm, their eyes are so sharp. They are hounding, if you will, uh, the Dhamma. They, they don't know why, but they're locked on target. The Dhamma is the target. It's like a heat-seeking missile. I know I'm using you know, violent image, but it's so directed. Nothing could distract them. That's power. There's no confusion. So when Lord Buddha was asked right before his death, uh, how, what would he like before his death, not, not very last minute, but he said to have all of you to attain at the very least the Sotapanna path stage, because that way I know you're safe. 
So let's seek safety where there is safety, instead of in our pleasures, in our sense pleasures, in our ideas, in the world, what's going on with the world, our concepts of the world, what we would like, or the future or the past. Many of us are still holding on to the past, the griefs and the losses, bereavement and whatnot, or the hopes of the past or the future. And that's why we practice sati. That's why we practice sati. Let's not look for the Dhamma only in our sitting, only on retreats. Look for it in your heart. Look for it in every single breath. Every time your hand touches something, every time you become aware of one of your six senses, that is a gateway into Nibbana. So I will pause here and, and uh, see if there are any uh, questions, comments, uh, again, about the practice and the Dhamma, please. I hope it was helpful in clarifying certain things. Bhante, thank you again for your talk. I think today's sutta must have been a good one because it actually raised a lot of questions in me. So I must not understand some many things. You spoke in this talk, you mentioned Angulimala and how he went from a murderer to being an arahant. And so one thing that I'm not clear on uh, in that is my understanding is that we build up our karma with every thought, deed and action as we go through life. And even when the karma doesn't result in an effect, um, immediately it stays with us until eventually the conditions are right and then those results come out. So I'm just wondering, since there must be, by that definition, some like a battery, a store of karma that we're carrying around, some good karma, bad karma, and there's a balance, I guess. For someone like Angulimala, who must have built up a huge amount of negative karma, how do we get rid of that negative karma? And I, under, I remember the simile of the salt where a teaspoon of salt in a small glass of water is very salty, but a teaspoon of salt in the lake is you can't taste the salt. And that's where we're building up merit and our good karma to reduce that. But the point that I can't see is how in Mala, simply by becoming an arahant, which is really an understanding, I guess, on his part, takes away all of that negative karma because he's, he can never be reborn in a hell realm regardless of all that murder that he, he's done as an arahant he's not going to be reborn so what is it that changes the karma simply by his understanding his insight that he's got mm -hmm. where we can't do that any other time and it's and and the karma stays with it the negative karma stays with us and, and results in negative consequences mm -hmm. later on mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. A good question because it actually bridges the two states, uh, um, specifically the saupadisesa, which is residues remaining for an arhant, uh, or any of the other stages like the nine that we've covered extensively today, and the anupadisesa, 
which your question is trying to uh, tap into that uh, is being is going to be addressed through that medium of the anupadisesa, which is without residues remaining, anupadisesa. So, um, but just to jump in straight into the kamma, um, we cannot change kamma as far as uh, the dhamma is concerned. Kamma that is made in the past, to be specific. Now, there are and have been uh, uh, schools, especially like in the case of Jainism, uh, contemporaries of uh, Lord Buddha's, that worked just in the context of, okay, we have to address each and every single kamma. Each and every single kamma. Well, which lifetime are we talking about? And, and let's, let's forget about the lifetimes. Let's pick this life, okay? Which year are we talking about? The comma from which decade? I've done some horrible things myself in my 20s. So is that enough? How about my previous lives? We're talking about Angulimala, 999 dead people in his wake. Brutally murdered. He wasn't going and killing them while they were asleep necessarily. He was ambushing them, creating fear. So that's pretty bad. However, one would be tempted to think, oh, I could never have been as bad as Angulimala, right? Wrong. We probably have done worse, worse things to, 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 to other beings around us. Just take your, the example of your own life. There were things that you used to do in the past, which is probably now unthinkable for you to do. Seeing that, oh no, oh, I was just stupid. I was self-centered, I was careless, I was callous, I was completely inconsiderate, lacking compassion, and blinded by my lust, by my hatred, by my delusion. And which lifetime is this? Oh, that was uh, six months ago. Wow, six months ago or a month ago. So kamma is not going to be, the kamma that is done, that is. Let me uh, be uh, clear on that. The, the kamma that is done. Now, I mentioned Jainism, for example, because they stand out, because they're still around, you know. They're, they have millions and millions of followers. Uh, their teachings also somewhat have uh, been perhaps change here and there, but essentially the message is there. Now, the reason why I'm bringing them up, them up is simply because their objective is to reduce the kamma somehow. They believe, and, and uh, their head, Nigantanataputta, uh, believed and taught that by uh, doing certain things, you're actually uh, canceling out canceling out the kamma of the past. And Lord Buddha scoffed at this because there's no way that you could change the past. However, he said, you can change the present. And by changing the present, you're changing the future. And that is where the formula of success took place with Angulimala. Now, what I mean by that is, in the context of Saupadisesa and Anupadisesa, 
when we say residues remaining, the residues we're referring to are the, uh, the group or is the group of the five aggregates, the grasping aggregates, the pancha khanda, namarupa, vedana, sanya, sankhara, and vijnana, form or mentality, materiality, feelings, three kinds of feelings, good, bad, and neutral, uh, memories or perceptions, uh, mental associations, I like to also add in there uh, as a definition, the sankharas, um, I like to call them as habitual tendencies, the patterns that we're stuck in, the grooves of the brain that we constantly repeat, even though we don't want to initially, and sense awareness or consciousness. These, if the person still has them, then it is like the table upon which the dust will settle. It is the substrate upon which things will land. Hence, if Angulimala, let's say, let's presume, um, post-Arahantship, had lived a long time, or lived up to you know, 26 centuries, and he would still be around, let's say, by some, you know, uh, some, you know, matter, he would have to pay for not just the 999, but everything else that happened prior. Now, why though? Why cooling off? Well, why? Let's, let's go back to the Anupadi Sesa. Cooling off by what? When the five aggregates are slowly coming apart in the Arahant. Remember, uh, I've given a talk uh, well, uh, where I mentioned this, where the disenchantment and the dispassion is so intense, where other functions or normal functions of, and that's why we need the protection of the robes as the person goes, you know, anagamin and beyond, as an arahant especially, they start to become not just disinterested, but really there is no pleasure. There is, it's a chore, it's a pain, in fact, it's dukkha for the person to uh, eat, to uh, do uh, alms round. For example, Ajahn Man, or Venable Sariputta, or Webu Sayadaw, or Shwe Sayadaw. When you look at them, they're just standing there, living for the sake of the supporters to make good merits by offering them food because they've done, it's complete. The holy life has been fully lived. So they're simply living the Maha Karuna. They're living the great compassion. Why? Because it's so cool. Now they're not dead yet, but the five aggregates are coming apart. They're so loose. They're being dismantled. It's like those five twigs that have been leaning against each other for support. That's the five aggregates. That's what kanda means, in fact, in Pali. You remove one, pop, 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 the others start to crumble. And that is the Anupadi Sesa. When you have the five aggregates, no more, you have the substrate, no more. 
And the dust that I used as a metaphor there is uh, a simile for the kamma vipakas. That so long as the person is alive in a body, they will be on the receiving end of the result, the outcome, the consequences of their action, irrespective of their attainment. And the biggest example of that is Lord Buddha himself. He had to suffer in his 80s from backache, actually before even he was 80. He had to suffer. And when his students were curious, uh, and he, uh, he answered to them that eons ago, he used to be a wrestler. And he would enjoy breaking his opponent's backs at the end of the match, just for fun. This is the Buddha. Gautama. But before being a Buddha, he had that deplorable act as part of his career as a wrestler. You have Venerable Mahamogallan, who was an Arahant, who was second only to the Lord to Lord Buddha in psychic abilities. He was the supreme, basically. In fact, many instances you have Lord Buddha. Uh, instructing Mahamogallana to do something. Because <laughs> Lord Buddha doesn't want to bother with that. And Mahamogallana would just do that. If somebody was sick, he would just go to the Himalayas and grab hold of a, of a, of a certain plant, medicinal plant, and bring it back immediately and give it as a tea to his, to his friends. Or immediately show up in the Brahma God's realm to show him a lesson, let's say to Sakka, the king of the gods to teach him some Dhamma. He himself, before he died, in fact, the way that he was, he was killed in his kuti, I don't know if I've mentioned this before here, I probably have, uh, where he was uh, going into his kuti, but remember the Jains? <laughs> they saw him as the golden ticket for the Dhamma because he was attracting a lot of people to come to the sasana from other faiths, including from the Jains. So they were losing a lot of supporters. Why? Because Mahamogallana was there. He was, there's nothing that he couldn't do psychically. So his energy was amazing, powerful, as if Lord Buddha's was not enough. So some wealthy and Jains have been and are very wealthy parts of uh, societal uh, uh, classes of India, very wealthy to this day. So they paid some mercenaries, some murderers, to go and kill uh, Venerable uh, Mahamogala. They hired a lot of them, actually, because they said, well, it doesn't hurt. So <laughs> they would go follow him after the alms round, and he would enter this tiny little uh, unpretentious kuti, and uh, they would come in, and he would feel their energy. He would see their thoughts before they came in, and he would just disappear or be so small that he would look through the keyhole because you have to have a, a key in the, in the kuti. As monks, we do have that uh, requirement. So anyhow, um, so he, would, he did this so many times. He just like disappeared. But he's there. He's seeing. And they come in perplexed now. They, they, he, they saw him from all angles. He walks in. He's an old man. He was older than Lord Buddha, in fact. But he disappeared. Like, where is he? So after days days, repetitions of this, Venerable Mahamogalana gets 
I wouldn't say annoyed or tired, but he's like, why are these people so insistent on killing me? He says, oh, oh, maybe it has something to do with my past. Let me look. He looks and he sees that eons ago, eons ago, he had taken his parents, both of whom were blind, eons ago in a different era. He was married, but he and his wife were having issues because of his parents. And despite the fact that he loved them dearly, she insisted that he takes them and gets rid of them. Gets rid of them. And he puts them, uh, he takes them and, and carries them and puts them in his uh, carriage, in his cart as a farmer. And he goes into the jungle as far away as possible. He doesn't leave them there. He kills them. And Venerable Mahamu Galana says, ah, I see. He's not a hunt fully done with his work but there's still that substrate the table from, upon which here now were the dust from the past the vipakas we call it kamma vipakas the fruits of the kamma coming and knocking on his door and he says ah okay so it's pointless for me he could have still avoided them he said no 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 and he was already tired from occupying this body this decrepit body and remember, the aggregates are coming loose. And he just opens the door and allows them in. And they brutally cut him to pieces. And, uh, but because of his psychic abilities, because of his superlative psychic abilities, par excellence, after they see that there's no way that he could get out of that alive. I mean, it's all covered in blood. It's like they go and he puts himself back together just enough with enough energy because it takes a lot of energy to apply these psychic abilities. So you need a lot of concentrative energy and ability. And it has the doorway to that is through the fourth jhana, but it's full absorption jhana. So anyhow, uh, because he feels like, well, uh, I, I, as a chief disciple, I have not yet taken my proper leave from Lord Buddha, my teacher. I will never see him again. He will never see me again. This is it. So as is customary, the chief disciple must go back and pay homage. And typically, the teacher, the great teacher, will ask the chief disciple to give a Dhamma talk. Not just the chief disciples, but especially them, before they die. And he goes bloodied, his robes in tatters and all that. And he goes and bows down, and Lord Buddha knows, of course. He was seeing the whole process with his Buddha eye. And he says, Magallana, why don't you offer some Dhamma to your spiritual friends? And he says, yes. It's real. This path takes us to these states. Lord Buddha never uttered a single lie, a single falsehood. Every opportunity you become aware, you're living the truth of that word of his. Irrespective of time means nothing. Time means nothing. 
if we're present to the Dhamma. That's why the Dhamma is far wider, bigger than just this small time that we offer for a sit. It's nothing. Not that you have to sit longer. Yes, if you can, fine. But bring that, let it permeate to the rest of the different fabric, different, different aspects, different frames of your life. Places where you think, no, 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 I'm not going to practice sati here. That could take a time out. No. Everywhere you go, every interaction. And the more we do that, the more we start to become more and more saturated with it. Like a sponge getting more and more drenched in water. So um, with that is how I would uh, answer your question, Greg, with uh, the, the difference between how come, where did all his, 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 his Kamek Vipakas go? It was it's horrible. Well, my thing is uh, not to even look at just that one life because he probably might have done worse things. And so have we. And that's why, one of the reasons why Lord Buddha insisted on at least attain the Sotapanna stage because the chances are so high for us to be reborn in miserable states, given the horrific things that we've done in the past. The possibilities for unwholesome actions, thoughts, and words to be done, the possibilities for those are far greater. To break this cup is easy. I could just drop it and it just shatters splatters the water all over the place. Easy. That's the second law of thermodynamics. Energy moves from an organized state to disorganized state. That still holds true here. Because many people have put their effort to actually get this into my hand. People have to make the ingredients, this and that. Somebody had to sit down and, and put it on a clay wheel and, and build it, and then somebody had to paint it, and somebody had to sell, etc., etc. So a lot of hands. It went through so many hands to get it to this state. But I can destroy it so easily. So the possibility for worst is always there. And we have done the worst. The only way out, the only way guaranteed, that's why I felt so I felt my heart sank when I heard my teacher say that, well, it's, you know, it's okay. I, I will be reborn in a Deva realm. That's where I'm going to hear the Dhamma. What guarantees do you have? Ajahn Mahabua says the hell realms are full of bhikkhus and bhikkhunis. Not just Mahayana, by the way, a lot of Theravada. <laughs> Don't think that I'm biased. <laughs> Absolutely not. Is there Dhamma in the heart? Period. It doesn't matter if the person is ordained or not. You might have more Dhamma in your heart, more dedication than any bhikkhu, perhaps. Of course, there are many, many bhikkhus and, uh, who are. I don't mean disrespect towards them. But we need to take advantage of this life and stop hoping 
in some belief, some abstract idea, some romantic, idealistic, some creatively ornate, beautiful, lovely images of, oh, yes, you, you get teary-eyed. No, that's stupid because Lord Buddha also called those as, as obstacles to feel, to feel moved, but don't do anything. Angulimala was moved to tears when he saw Lord Buddha in front of him, you know. That's what compels a person with that much strength, physical prowess, and intention to kill, to stop in, dead in his tracks and drop his sword, drop his arrows and bows, and get on his knees. In front of him was just a man that, as far as he could tell, who was wearing robes, he was bald. But there was some serenity about him compelled him, put him into an absolute freeze from this heated volcano that he had lived for years, being this murderer. So that is what compels a person to make a 180 turn. But there is that willingness to do it. It is up to every single person. Nobody can make you be mindful. It's self-generated. It others can actually inculcate. They can encourage you. That's why associating with the right person is number one. And the second is having yoni somanasikara, wise attention, which also involves having wise faith, not blind faith. Believing that in the future I'm going to be born in a Buddha realm, that's blind faith. That's stupid. That's dumb. And it does not give honor and respect to the Buddha Sasana, especially if I'm enrobed. So I hope I was able to. I know I. <laughs> Good. Any other thoughts, comments about the sutta, the practice, Dhamma? Hmm. Very well. Um, I haven't, uh, oh, yes. Sorry, I do have other questions. I was just hoping that I see Lou wants to have a, has a question. I'd like to give other people some opportunity before I take oh. up everybody's time. Oh, for sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I didn't see Lou. Uh, I'm sorry. I, I don't see all your faces, your icons, so apologies. So please go ahead and speak. If you have a question, yes, um, I am curious to know or interested to know um, in this sutta, uh, or you made the comment uh, that up to seven lives, mm. right? Mm -hmm. But I've also read that in other suttas, also maximum seven lives like in the Mahasatipatthana Sutta mm -hmm. eh? mm -hmm. uh, connected to sati continuous mm -hmm. sati continuous practice so is there any background information or um, yes or understanding uh, why seven mm. why not ten twelve <laughs> or, or three or you know is, is there a, a meaning is there uh, an explanation why it may take up to seven lives? 
please that's, thank you of course uh, that's an interesting question um uh, i personally don't have a, a clear-cut answer for you for that as to where it comes um the number seven that is and why the seven uh, but I do, uh, like you mentioned, Maha Satipatthana Sutta, Satipatthana Sutta, uh, Raja Kumara Sutta uh, from the Majjhima Nikaya. You have so many places where Lord Buddha talks about the seven lives and uh, or seven years. That's another thing. So he uses seven years in the case of uh, Raja Kumara Sutta, uh, the discourse given to Crown Prince Bodhi who had come to ask as to, uh, actually, Lord Buddha had gone for uh, a meal being offered by the prince. So the question comes up, and Lord Buddha starts with seven, seven years, and then drops it down to such a small, minuscule time period where the person can attain um, not just seven years. I mean, seven, excuse me, seven lifetimes. So, so I don't have an answer for as to why. Uh, I have from other in my research in philosophy or, or just, you know, interest in reading things, different cultures and religions and numbers, uh, seven denotes, not just in Buddhism, of course, in other religions too, seven denotes a almost a complete number, if not a complete number, uh, seven days, seven this, seven uh, layers of existence in some um, uh, metaphysics or, I don't know, esoteric things. So I don't know what the intention behind it was, perhaps because of the fact that Lord Buddha used many of his contemporary ideas and thoughts that were available, that were being discussed. For example, the term Tathagata is not a Buddhist term. You had Nigantanata Buddha calling himself Tathagata, for example. Uh, the dust have gone one or other terms, uh, or even the cosmology that we talk about. However, or even karma, karma. Uh, Lord Buddha took those terms, but he didn't keep it the way they were. Karma, he completely turned it on its head. He said, no, 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 no. It's not just any action you do. It's the intention, the chetana, the volitional intention behind your action. Was there intention to do this? Whether it's something good, like giving dana, generous, uh, being generous, is there intention behind it? Oh, there isn't? Guess what? You're not getting the merits of that. Perhaps the person who received it and was celebrating in their heart the fact that somebody else gave them something, they will get that gain. <laughs> you have this, I think it was in the Book of Four in the, in the Anguttara Nikaya, Buddha explaining this. Um, and the same goes for the uh, gods and the cosmology. Lord Buddha took the 31 layers of cosmology that was available then. So he used that number. And he uh, also said, well, wait a minute, uh, this Mahabrahma, all these gods that you think live forever, they don't. They actually have delusion there. They have not penetrated into three characteristics of existence. They don't see anicca. They don't see dukkha. They don't understand anatta. That's why they're going to fall from tum, 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 all the way down to the bottom of the valley. And in some cases in hell. From Brahma realms. This was unthinkable. 
to this day, many, many people who are not Buddhists or uh, from India, let's say, especially in those days, that was blasphemy for them because you just pulled the rug from under their feet because they're worshiping this God and you're saying, well, your God is God today, but he's going to be a dog tomorrow or a snail or the cockroach that you were trying to run and, and, and try to kill in your house. That was going to be your Brahma, was your Brahma. So he took whatever was available, and I'm presuming also seven. The Buddha never actually truly cared for any of these numbers. But coming specifically to the Sotapanna, he was such a generous teacher. He was also giving hope. I personally have never come across any segment in the suttas, any teaching where it says, and this Sotapanna, having reached his seventh life, is when he or she attained Arahant. There's no such reference. I've never come across it. So chances are, even though it says two, three, four, five, or seven lifetimes, that means it's, the person is so lazy. <laughs> even though they're targeting, you know, the Dhamma is, is guiding them, they still have attachments. Sakka, the king of the gods, he has attachments. He's last time I heard uh, from the suttas, you know, he was uh, <laughs> heard from the suttas, interesting. Uh, he was a sotapanna. I've heard from others that he was a sakadagami, but still, he's still drenched in the sixth sense, in, in, the, in, the, in the kama lokas. So the kama lokas can be so powerful, the pleasure seeking. And they will say, well, don't worry, I have enough time. So for those type of people, uh, types of people, that would be the, uh, yeah, I guess the extension they get. I don't know. Do you feel like I answered your question? I mean, as as within my own limitations. Okay, good. Yes, thank you very much. Good. Uh, Greg, I believe you had some. You said you have some question. Yes, thank you. Uh, I understand in some schools of Buddhism, there are different stories about what happens to us after death. And for instance, in the Tibetan schools, they have something like 49 days, you whatever. And I don't understand the stories. I don't know them all. Uh, but in my understanding of the Theravada version is that we... Um, our next rebirth happens instantane instantaneously. Our rebirth linking consciousness is from one moment, from one thought moment to the next thought moment, wherever it's going to go, it goes there. That's the understanding that I currently have. So based on that understanding, when I look at the Buddha's description of these people in the first one, it says one who has attained attain Nibbana during the interval between this life and the next. Mm. And I'm wondering what interval he's talking about. Ah, <laughs> the interval um, uh, involving death, the death of this body, the body that they were occupying. When the conscious, when the five aggregates have come apart, the level of wisdom, even though it's not as perfect as that of an arahant, uh, it's nevertheless powerful enough 
to dismantle the five aggregates at the moment because the dismantling of the aggregate, whether we are arahants or just putujanas, regular people, uh, nothing to do with the Dhamma even, we all experience the, dis the, the breaking up of the aggregates. But the longing and the craving, the bhavatanha, the craving for re-becoming, uh, is, is not there. For that first level of, uh, of a person, in meaning an anagamin of that highest, highest caliber. Because there was the need for this body of theirs to break apart. Because there was, on some level, some level, a subtle attachment, a subtle level of grasping vis-a-vis -vis one or if not all five of the khandas. Now, when the body is, uh, it has reached its end and it's breaking apart on its own, and the mind of the anagamin is so present, is observing what is happening, that becomes the conduit or the jumping board into Nibbana before they take on the next rebirth as dictated by the level of uh, clarity and attainment uh, that they have uh, experienced, meaning an anagami, which would be any of the pure abodes, like I mentioned earlier. But that interval period is referring to the leaving of the this bundle of aggregates, which we call the mind-body complex, the phenomenon of a body, breaking it up at the moment of death and never having the bhavatana to reform it, reform it into when they open their eyes next, in the next moment or thought moment to be awoken in, awakened in, in, in the pure abode at landing, which would be the next stage. How are you finding this, by the way? So I think you're saying that it's still between the interval, but in those thought moments. So it's a very short time. Very short time, yes. Right. And, and there's a sutta. Um, it's in the Anguttara Nikaya. Again, it's one that I translated. Uh, I think it's in the Book of Fives. I'm not sure which one uh, right now, but... Uh, uh, I think it was between Venerable Sariputta and Venerable Ananda. And, or Venerable Ananda is talking with someone explaining the different stages. Uh, 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 and he says beautifully, without any gaps in between. There's no gaps in between. So uh, it's so quick. You don't get like an alarm setting off. Okay, here's Arahantship. Here, here comes, here comes. No, none of that. It's so quick, apparently, as Venerable Ananda is saying. And as, as um, here in this sutta, during the interval. Uh, so in, in relation to the Bardo Todol, which is the Tibetan Book of the Dead, uh, um, um, that is... Uh, buildup that that is like a consequence of many many influences shall we say and um the Theravadins in their own turn in their own uh uh on their own they had actually uh gone deep into the abhidhamma 
which was again, and this is controversial, many people are not gonna like this as well, <laughs> hearing me say it, but Abhidhamma was never taught by Lord Buddha. You don't see it. Now, there's elements of obvious, uh, uh, elements of, of descriptions of the psychological factors here and there, but the Dhamma, the whole thing is about that in the first place. So what you had were people later on came, came up and said, well, the Buddha went up to, um, uh, I think, um, uh, Tushita heaven, I think, or the realm of the 33, Tavatinsa heaven, and he taught the Abhidhamma for three months, the whole rain uh, retreat period to his mother, who was now reborn as a youthful uh, god. And uh, so you have all these extra elements added later because the first council didn't have the Abhidhamma. The second council, which came a hundred years after the first council, did not have the Abhidhamma. Now, there were some elements here and there being discussed, and some people were attributing it to Venerable Sariputta, and many say that Lord Buddha, after he came back and from uh, his... Uh, time in the heavens, teaching the Abhidhamma to his mother, past mother, uh, Queen Maya, um, he had to explain the Abhidhamma to Venerable Sariputta because his mind could be the only one who could actually comprehend. And that's how we get only the Abhidhamma being, you know, brought in in the third council, which was happening at the time of uh, Emperor Ashoka. So uh, convened at, uh, at the behest of Emperor Ashoka. Now, if you take the Abhidhamma and look at the different volumes and, and the Puggalapanyati and all these different things, uh, you see it's mind-boggling. It's so, it detaches the human, the concrete, the pragmatic, that you see the pragmatic element, the juice of it, the juiciness of life from Dhamma proper and puts a, this huge Berlin type of wall, impassable wall between the Dhamma and all this added psychological breakdowns of things that you don't see in the suttas, most of which. So they had this thing called Bhavanga to kind of come up with some type of a vehicle that is the thing that is being reborn, etc. All of which you don't see. In fact, Lord Buddha even uh, scolded and admonished individuals who were coming from the Vedic or Upanishadic, you know, Atta or Atman, the soul uh, theory, and they were trying to uh, inject that into the teachings because that's how they function. They didn't understand Patichasampada. So Bhabhidhamma showed up. And later on, you had other traditions of the, uh, Buddhism, different branches showing up, and Mayana and then Vajrayana eventually, many, many centuries, you know, years later, uh, taking up these additional or adding, uh, the, the act of adding things to the Dhamma in order for it to become more interesting and more philosophical and less relatable. That's one of the reasons why I discourage people from getting into the Visuddhimagga, into the 
other than the sila part, because the sila part of the Visuddhimagga is pretty compelling, it's wonderful, but is a commentator. Buddha Gosha was a commentator. But you had entire schools within the Theravada worshipping, and still do, the Visuddhimagga, worshipping whatever the commentators have said at the cost of the suttas. And that's why I've spent a long time, and I will be spending many, many more years if I'm alive, in bringing the suttas back to the forefront. And now there is this lovely movement that's happening where a lot of young people, interested, enthusiasts uh, in the Dhamma, wanting to go back to the suttas. So I get every, this week, it happened that every day I was getting an email from somebody who has been listening or whatever, becoming exposed to the suttas and thanking that, grateful that the sasana, the dhamma is still, is coming to them and they have access to it. So I find that a lot more concrete than hoping that with the 49 days, is that accurate or not? Because I don't have an answer for that. Um, and that's not Dhamma. If I don't have an answer to that, if I don't, if I cannot provide a concrete instruction, let's say, do wholesome acts if you want to taste wholesome fruits. Who can deny that? It's so logical. It's so rational. It's so like, yeah. And that's why you have so many illiterate individuals becoming even not just sotapanas, but full-on arahants, simply by listening to Lord Buddha. So you didn't have this philosophy, this top-heavy on intellectualizing things. Or the other extreme, just lost in blind faith, in bhakti, in just blindly believing and thinking that that's going to take you. And that's one of the reasons why not all paths are the same. Even notable teachers in Asia, Theravadin monks, have come out and said, oh, all uh, religions are the same. All of them are like Buddhism. And I was like, how could you say that? And be an Ajahn on top of that. That is true blasphemy. That is misrepresentation of the Dhamma. Because the Dhamma is incomparable. Because it is the absolute cure for Dukkha. It is the cure for ignorance. And that is the mag, uh, uh, Majjimapada. That is the middle path. That's why Lord Buddha, before being a Buddha, he gave up his crown. He said, no, I'm, I'm not even going to hold my baby boy. I'm not going to hold him. He was in tears. He said, if I hold him once, if I touch his skin once, that would be the end of it. Because I, my, my, my desire to find the path will be shaken because of being a father, the love of a father towards his son. That would completely ruin it. And in tears, he chose not to hold his baby who was sleeping next to his beloved wife. So he walked away. And he gave 45 years of his life. He went to the, he was at the, on the verge of death several times before becoming an, uh, a Buddha when he was practicing the austerities. All this is negated when we make the Dhamma, turn the Dhamma into something that it is not. The Dhamma can find its purity in your heart. 
I don't care what anyone says. The Dhamma is a lot, can be, is born in your heart. And that's where Arahanship happens. That's where you see the Dhamma. Not through the books, not through debates, not through blind belief, not through hoping that you're going to be one day by saying uh, this Buddha's name, that uh, mantra, this and that, you're going to be reborn in Tushita or Western paradise. None of that exists. None of that. Pure boats only exist as a place for anagamis. Are you an anagami? Okay, you're not going to be born there. And why would you be interested in that? First, find the way. And the only way you find it is through the suttas. The only way. And the way that you can stay on the path is by practicing. Who? You practicing. No one can breathe for you. No one can eat for you. No one can nourish you through their own bodies. So it's going to take your own effort to make most of this life. And in this life is where we're going to be attaining, if we are. And that is the objective, healthy objective. And I hope I addressed your question. <laughs> All right. Uh, I, I saw that others uh, sent messages, and I'm glad I know... Uh, Russell, you uh, said it's very helpful. And then I saw Matthias's message and I hope you found the Sutta inspiring. Wonderful. I'm glad it's working for you. And uh, on the side, I am um, working um, with uh, students as well as friends of the Dhamma. Uh, and uh, this past, uh, well, in translating the book into different languages. So, um, and uh, some of you are involved and I appreciate your effort. And uh, we need to get them out in different languages to make the Dhamma uh, available as soon as possible. And um, also I haven't decided I, in the next, on, for the next sutta, um, I have dedicated three weeks uh, for Mahasatipatthana, which would be coming up, I think, if not the next one, and definitely the one after that. I don't recall if it's the next one, but basically, uh, I haven't translated that yet. <laughs> it's a vast sutta from the Diga Nikaya. But uh, I look forward in starting that with you uh, sometime in the near future. Um, so, um, and next week, we'll uh, resume our sitting uh, for two hours. Um, so uh, let's, let's, let's um, share some merits. May suffering ones be suffering free and the fear struck fearless be. May the grieving shed all grief and may all beings find health relief. May all beings share in these merits that we have thus acquired for the acquisition of all kinds of wholesome happiness. May beings inhabiting space and earth, devas and nagas of mighty power, share in these merits. May they long protect the Buddha's dispensation. Sadhu, sadhu, sadhu. May you be well. May the blessings of the Triple Gem be with you and your loved ones. And may you discover a new layer of the Dhamma every day, every instant. And that comes through your trust, your humility, and 
Humility not towards a person, but humility towards the Dhamma, first and foremost. The rest, you know, the, will follow. So trust in your goodness, please. Don't forget that. Trust in your virtue. Practice your sila and you have nothing to worry about. Base it on the teachings, your intentions. And always check the mind to see, where am I coming with this? What, what is the attitude of my mind in wanting to say this, in wanting to think this, in wanting especially to do this? And you don't even have to read another book or watch a movie. You have it. Every day it's an adventure. Every moment is an adventure that you're discovering. The freshness of life. The freshness. And that is Dhamma, because it doesn't grow old. It doesn't become stale. Especially in our heart. So, be well, and I'll see you next week, hopefully. Sukhiwata.